Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. My name is Bruce Hess. I'm the teaching pastor here at Wildwood, and I invite you now to take out the Word of God and turn in it in the New Testament to the Gospel of John and chapter number 8. Some of you will have printed versions. Some of you have electronic version. Whatever it is, turn to John chapter 8. I think most of us would agree that one of the most riveting international stories we've seen for a long time is the story that has unfolded in the past few weeks about the 12 soccer players and their coach from Thailand who were trapped in the cave. 12 children aged 11 to 16. And you might say, why did they ever go into the cave to begin with? Well, they went in as an initiation. The idea is they were going to go into the cave, go to the back of it, write their names on the wall. And after their soccer practice that day, they took a 45-minute bike ride And on June the 23rd, they went into the cave despite the sign that was there warning about entering the cave during the rainy season. Most of you know the story that a flash flood came and trapped them two and a half miles into the cave. And you you say, well, how did they even find out they were there? Well, one member of the team was not able to go with them He noticed that they had not returned, and so he went to the entrance of the cave, saw all of their bikes parked there, and their soccer equipment piled up, and then he notified the authorities. Now, they entered on June the 23rd. It took them until July the 2nd to even locate them in the cave. And in those nine days that they had been into the cave before they were located, their flashlights had all died. They had no idea what day it was. They had spent several days in utter darkness. And we know that the story ends well, that after 18 days, on July the 10th, the last of them came out safely. But you know, utter darkness is intimidating. I don't know if you remember this or not, but one of the 10 plagues that God sent to to Egypt so that they might free the people of Israel. One of those 10 plagues was a plague of darkness, interestingly enough. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 10. And it is described there, God brought this darkness, and it was a thick darkness, very interesting descriptive. It was a darkness that could be felt. And we learn there that for three days, None of the Egyptians moved at all. I mean, when you're in utter darkness, you don't know what you're going to bump into. Now, I think all of us, particularly in storm country USA, have had the experience, you know, maybe where our power went out and it goes out at night, it's a cloudy night, or there's no moon, and it's just that utter darkness. And what's your first response when that happens? We got to get some light By the way, that was the very first response of the boys in the cave. When they're in that utter darkness, we need light. Why? Because light dispels darkness. We're in a series of messages that we have entitled, I Am, unpacking who Jesus really is. And what we are examining are what are called 
some of the I am statements of Jesus. Now, those first two terms are very important, I am. We learn from the book of Exodus, that is the name of God. I am, a go, a me in the original language. What is the name we should say? You should say the name I am. I am the sovereign creator God. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah, as is sometimes translated. That's who Jesus claimed to be, but he goes beyond just the name I am. He explains further who he is as God. And last week, we looked at the statement, I am the bread of life, where he was communicating that he is the satisfier of human souls. Today, we're going to look at the second statement that he makes, and that is, I am the light of the world. I am the illuminator of hearts. So if you have your Bible located at John chapter 8, I want to read a verse, which is verse 12 from that chapter, and then I'm going to read two verses out of chapter 12. So in John chapter 8, And verse 12, Jesus speaks and he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And I want to read verses 35 and 36 of John chapter 12. Carrying along with the same theme in chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus says, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light." Now, our plan for today involves four steps that we're going to take. First of all, we want to look at the prominence of light in Scripture. It's a very prominent theme. Then we want to look at the historical backdrop to Jesus' declaration that I am the light. And we're going to see this makes his declaration all the more vivid when we understand the backdrop to it. Thirdly, we want to examine the significance of Christ's declaration that I am the light of the world. And then finally, we're going to end up with two key life responses that what we're examining today just demands from us. So that is our plan. So we want to begin by looking at the prominence of light in Scripture. And I I think all of us are familiar with the contrast between the light and the dark. And maybe this is true in all cultures. You know, we view the light as that which is good. We view the dark as that which is bad or evil. We would often say that if we have clarity or certainty about something, that we are enlightened. Or if we are confused or uncertain about something, we might say, well, we are in the dark. And the Bible has a lot to say about light, often in contrast to the darkness. It's a very prominent thing. And I just want to look at a few illustrations of it. For example, light is prominent in the Bible at the beginning of creation. You might remember if you go back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis, there is darkness. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, God says, let there be light, and the light dispels the darkness. And it says that God saw that the light was good. 
We see this prominence at the beginning of creation. We also see it at the birth of Jesus. You might remember that when he was born, he was born at night and there was darkness. And in Luke chapter two and verse nine, when you have the shepherds gathered in the field, it says that the glory of the Lord shone all around them. You had darkness, but you had this prominence of light. We see it at the beginning of creation, at the birth of Jesus. We also see it at the resurrection of Jesus. You might remember that he was resurrected before dawn while it was still dark. And in Matthew 28, 3, what happens before the soldiers is the angel of the Lord appears, and it says that his appearance was like lightning. You know what it's like when lightning goes off. It brings light in the darkness. It dispels the darkness. We also see the prominence of light even at the end of the Bible, at the end of the book of the Revelation, at the onset of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And after centuries centuries and centuries of spiritual darkness, now God creates a new heavens and a new earth and the new city of Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and it says in Revelation 21, verses 23 to 25, that there'll be no sun or moon. Why? Why? Because the glory of God will illuminate it. And it says, literally, the Lamb, speaking of Jesus, is the lamp. And so what we see is there's this prominence of light in the Bible, dispelling the darkness, and Jesus is expanding on that. Which leads us to the second thing that we want to examine today, And that is the historical backdrop of Jesus' declaration when he says, I am the light of the world. Now, this backdrop is very helpful. It's fascinating. It adds spice to Jesus' declaration. Now, just in order to understand the backdrop, turn maybe one page in your Bible in John chapter 7 to verse 2. This is what's happening in the backdrop to what he's going to say. We learn in chapter 7 and verse 2, it was that time of the year when the Feast of the Jews, called the Feast of Booths, was near. In fact, it begins to unfold in John chapter 7. This Feast of the Booths, or sometimes called the Feast of the Tabernacles, and even other times called the Feast of Lights, and you will see why it was called that in a little while. This was a a feast that God had ordained for Israel that occurred around the 1st of October. It was a feast that was designed for the nation to celebrate the harvest, but it was also a feast that was designed to celebrate God's provision in the past when the nation had come out of Egypt and was in the wilderness. And that's the reason why they would build these temporary booths or temporary shelters because they were remembering what it was like for the nation when they lived in the wilderness. They couldn't build homes. They were always moving around. And so when the Feast of the Booths would happen annually, they would have families who would build a temporary booth or temporary shelter as a reminder of God's provision for them in the wilderness. Now, that's something that God had ordained. But over the years, the Jews had added an additional human tradition to the Feast of the Booths. And what they had done is they erected four large light poles in the courtyard of the temple. And on the top of those tall light poles, each of them had four 
pots. And it took large ladders that would go up against those four poles, and they would fill each of those four pots on each pole with oil. Now, how did they light the oil? Now, now you're going to think that I'm joshing you or I'm making this up, but I'm not. This actually comes from the Mishnah, the Old Testament commentary by the Jews. And here's what they would do. I mean, this is the truth. They would take the worn out linen undergarments of the priests and they would use them as wicks. I mean, we, we have a picture there of what this linen undergarment looked like from their waist to their knees. They would wear this under their priestly robes. And I know this sounds kind of weird, but they would take the worn out linen undergarments and they would roll them up. I hope they washed them before they did this, but they would actually put them into the oil and that became the wick to light the oil. And as one person has suggested, perhaps that's the origin of the phrase, I'd like to light a fire under that preacher. I don't really know, but it certainly makes sense. But, but it's important to understand why all this was put together. It was to commemorate the pillar of fire that would appear in the darkness in the wilderness. And remember, the pillar of fire signified the presence of God in the darkness of the night. Now, now it's important to understand that, that in that day, they lived in a different culture. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have batteries. They, they didn't have lighting on the temple mount. And so when they put these poles up and they, they lit each of these four pots with those little special wicks, it, what it would do is it would illuminate the whole temple mount. And remember, the temple is built on a small mountain. And so when all of that was lit up during the festival of the booths or the festival of the lights, it was sometimes called, it could be seen for miles away. In fact, if you were there you would feel like it was lighting up the world. Now, we learn from chapter 7 of the Gospel of John in verse 14 that Jesus was teaching the people during this festival in the temple courtyard. And we learn from chapter 7 and verse 37 that it was basically nearing the end, it was the concluding time for the Feast of the Booths. And what they did is they would turn those lights out. They wouldn't come on again until the next year. Now, that's the historical backdrop to what Jesus is getting ready to say. Remember, these lamps would illumine the temple during the feast. Probably the feast has just ended, which leads us to the significance of Christ's declaration where he says, I am the light. Now, in part, when he said, I am the light, it was a declaration again, as we have seen, of his deity. We know that from a passage like Psalm 27.1, where David says, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Yahweh God, I am God, is connected with being light and salvation. In Isaiah chapter 60 in verse 19 it says, "Yahweh will be your everlasting light." And so when Jesus says, "I am a go a me, I am the light." 
It was another indicator of his claim, very clear claim to deity. But he expands on it. He says in chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world, not just the light of the temple mount in Jerusalem, not just the light of Israel. I am the light of the world, which is exactly what Messiah was to be. Isaiah 49, 6 says, Messiah will be a light to the nations. And in Isaiah chapter 9, another messianic section in verse 2, it says, the people, speaking of the Messiah, who walk in darkness will see a great light. Look again at chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. But notice he goes on to say, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now when he's talking about darkness here, he's not talking about physical darkness. Obviously, he's talking about spiritual darkness. I don't know if you're picking up on it or not, but there's an awful lot of irony here. I mean, think about it. I I want you to know the Jewish leaders, they were so proud of these four light poles that they put up with the four pots on each one. They, They were so proud of how they would light that up every year, remembering the pillar of fire, which was a promise of the presence of God back in the time of the wilderness. And they were just so proud of all of this. They liked to boast about it. Everybody looked forward to this time of the year. They would talk about when it would happen again next year. And yet, ironically, the real light of the world was standing right in front of them. And if you read through the rest of chapter 8, you'll find that they're just outright rejecting Jesus. They're turning away from the real light. Do you see the irony in all of that? Oh, we're so proud of these light. But the real light is right there. And Jesus goes on to say to the religious leaders in chapter 8 and verse 24, there's some consequences to you turning from the light. He says to them, I say to you, verse 24, that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe, ego me, the Old Testament name of God, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you embrace me as the light, you will pay consequences for your sin. And by the way, that same consequence has been in force for centuries and centuries since that. It's really true of every man, woman, and young person that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's so much in the Gospel of John about this whole theme of light. For example, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, Speaking of Jesus who came, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. They missed it. 
In verse 7, talking about John the baptizer, who would be the forerunner of Jesus, it says that John came as a witness to testify about the light. Here we go. So that, why was he there? All might believe through him, through Jesus. Now think about it for a moment. Jesus claimed, I am the light of the world. It is either truly cosmic or comical for someone to say that. In John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, The light has come into the world. And here we get some answers for why there's a turning away from the light. Men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Why did the Jewish leaders turn away from Christ as a light? They preferred their sin and rebellion. They wanted to keep living their life their own way. And it's been interesting over the decades, the number of people I've heard say, in essence, the very same thing. You talk to them about the person of Christ, not interested. I like, I like my life. I like the choices I'm making. I, like, I want to live my life my own way. And part of the problem that we have as human beings is this tendency to love the darkness rather than the light, because we want to live our life just the way we want to live it. Men and women, it's important. I don't know all of you personally. It's important for us to understand that his aim in your life is he wants to illuminate your life. Jesus Christ wants to show you what life is truly about. That's his aim. And that brings us to the fourth thing we want to look at this morning, which are two key life responses. As we look at at what all this means, what does God want from us? Well, the first key life response is this. He wants all of us to turn to the light. Again, I, I want everybody to understand Before you were ever born, you were on the mind of Jesus Christ. Before you were ever born. His plan for you was to deliver you from the darkness of death. You know, some of us have recently come in contact with death maybe in our family, maybe some friend. And you know, when you you just touch it, it is such a dark thing. He wants to deliver you from the darkness of death. He wants to deliver you from the darkness of your own life. And some of you may be feeling that right now. And and what he sets before every man, woman, and young person is this. He says, you must make a life decision. And that life decision is to believe in, to trust in, to count on what Jesus Christ came to this planet to accomplish on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have come as light into the world. Why? Why? so that everyone who believes in me 
will not remain in darkness, will not experience eternally the darkness of death and even the darkness of their own life. You know, no one wants to remain in darkness. When you have darkness that is thick, darkness that can be felt, no one wants to stay there. What he said to the Jewish officials in John chapter 8, verse 24, is what he says to you and to me. You will die in your sins and pay the consequences of that unless, he phrased, unless you believe that I am he. I can still emotionally remember when I was wrestling with these light and darkness issues in my own life. I had gone to church. There was a traveling couple, a child evangelist who came to the church, and they presented and laid out this message of Jesus really being the light of the world and how he came to die in my place, taking all of my responsibility on himself, and then he rose again triumphantly from the dead, and that we had an obligation to believe in and to trust in that. To turn to the light rather than remaining in the darkness. And, and I, I heard all of that, and I remember going home to my little bedroom, my little single bed, and laying on there and wrestling with those issues in my personal life. And while laying there on that bed, it's when I made that life choice. I don't want to die in my sins. I don't want to be responsible eternally for my rebellion against God. I want to count on what Christ did on the cross. I want to trust in him. And that choice is set before every single person. Just as it was set before the Jewish leaders. Are we going to turn to the light or turn away from the light? And there are eternal ramifications in either choice. So, again, not knowing everybody's background and situation, the first life response that this teaches us is we must turn to the light. If you've never done that, do that. You won't regret it. Second key life response. Not only to turn to the light, but also for those of us who have turned to the light and trusted in Christ, light your world is the second response that we have. And you know what's interesting in looking at these I am statements, one of the things we find out that the I am, the great I am, ultimately changes who I am. That's exactly what happened to me. If we've turned to the light and trusted in Christ, then he says to us, light your world. In Ephesians 5.8, Paul puts it this way. He says, you were formerly darkness, but now, he says, you are light in the Lord. What should we do then? Walk as children of of light, or we could translate it, live as children of light. 
Now, those of you who know me know that I'm a very practical guy. I, I, I like, don't just tell me what to do in general, but tell me how to do it. And so we want to talk about if we're going to walk as children of light for, as followers of Jesus, if we're going to live as children of light, how do we do that? Well, a number of years ago, we put together something we called the light acrostic, the L-I-G-H-T, the word for light in English, and we, we had a point for each letter of the word. I want to just share them with you because it's a way to put a little clothing on what it means to walk as children of light. So in the light acrostic, the letter L stands for living out God's truth. This is the way we walk and we live as children of light. We live out God's truth. We respond to his truth in our attitudes, in our actions. And the aim of all of that is to develop Christ-like character in our life. And if we're going to live out God's truth, we must begin by studying God's truth. And as I said last week, that's why when you come to Wildwood, we open up the Bible and we explain what it means and we talk about how it applies in our life because we want to live out God's truth. We study it, but not just storing it up here, but then we must apply it, then we must appropriate it, then we must practice it in our lives. We must be doers of the word, not hearers only. So if we're going to walk as children of light, the first thing we must be doing is living out God's truth. Second letter in the light acrostic is the I, which stands for investing in reaching others. This is the way we walk as children of light. We live as children of light. We utilize our time, the resources that God has given us, our time, our talent, and our treasure We invest those in drawing people to Jesus, in pointing people to Jesus. The aim here is what we call outreach, right? That is why, for example, just in recent days, we had a VBS where we had 610 kids here because we were investing in reaching others and pointing people to Jesus. It's why, as Pastor Mark shared, uh, we have, you know, almost 300 uh, kids are going to be here for Pine Cove Camp in the city because we are investing in reaching others. It's why this summer in our summer outreach, we've had 47 different people go to outreaches because we are investing in reaching others and pointing people to Jesus. That's what it means to walk as children of light. And that should be our goal in our neighborhood, at our work, at our school. So the first thing, if we're going to walk as children of light, live as children of light, we are living out God's truth. Secondly, we're investing in reaching others. Thirdly, the G in light stands for giving ourselves through serving. What did Jesus say? I did not come to be served, but what does it say next? To serve, right. And he goes on to say, later on, that we find our life by losing it for the sake of others. This is the aim of ministry. This is what it means to walk as children of light. This is why we say everyone ought to be serving in some way, somewhere. Some of the serving happens here on this piece of property, but it happens all other places. But that's part of what it means to walk as children of light. We're giving ourselves through serving. The H in light stands for honoring God through worship. This is where we exalt him for who he is and what he has done. The aim is celebration and reflection on the greatness of our God. 
And that's why it is a priority to be gathering together in worship because that's part of what it means to walk and live as children of light. And then lastly, in the light acrostic, the T stands for teaming together in relationships. This is where we relate to one another as a spiritual family, where the aim is fellowship. It's connection with one another. So when he says that because we are of the light now, that we are to walk and live as children of light, this is what it means. It means we're living out God's truth. We're investing in reaching others. We're giving ourselves through serving. We're honoring God through worship. We're teaming together in relationships. The great I am changes who I am. Remember what Jesus says here in John 8, 12? He says, I am the light of the world. In another instance, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, he flips it around. And now he says, you are the light of the world. You, plural, are the light of the world. Notice the wording here. He says, like a city on a mountain glowing in the night for all to see. Well, see the illusion back? Let your good deeds shine out for all to see. Why? So that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Ultimately, as the light of the world, we shine so that God gets honor and God gets glory. You know, a great picture of what it means to shine as light in the world comes from a a story that William Tanner tells of the China Inland Mission. And what happened was an elderly blind man at the mission trusted in Jesus as the light of the world. And uh, later on, after this elderly guy had trusted in Christ, the mission looked at his eyes and discovered that he had cataracts that could be removed by surgery. So they operated on him, and he regained almost all of his eyesight. And uh, now as a new believer, pretty cool, he was able to see both physically and spiritually. No happier guy at the mission than this old man. But one day the old man was gone. And the missionaries really wondered what in the world happened because he had never come to them and said, I'm going to be leaving and never told them goodbye, never had given them a final expression of gratitude for what had happened. He just vanished. And months went by and they had almost forgotten about him when suddenly he came back. And this time he wasn't alone. Over his shoulder was strung a rope that was almost 100 feet long And behind him, hanging on the rope, were nearly 50 blind men. You see, he had gone back to his village and then started back with this rope, picking up blind men all along the way. And he had been their eyes and their guide, and he brought them back to the place where he had found sight. That's ultimately the way it's supposed to be. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word that's alive, it's powerful. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the light of the world and that he's called us to walk and live as children of light, that we are now the light of the world.
we would pray as men and women that we would be faithful to live as light. And for those who've never turned to the light, Father, we pray not another moment would go by where they have not done that to come to know he who truly is the light of the world, to experience his marvelous light. We pray that would happen for them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.